and welcome to a new episode of A Flat Pack History of Sweden. I'm Elsa. And I'm Chris. And this is episode 24, Sigtuna, Sweden's oldest town. We have been out and about again, this time visiting the town that Erik Segersjöl founded and where Olof Skötkonung began minting coins. We went to the lovely town of Sigtuna. Uh, but before we head off there, it's time for the Swedish phrase of the week. Yes, and this is one that I learned at work recently. It's called Fron Ax till Limpa. It translates to English as from ear to bread loaf. And that's ear in the sense of the bulb on a straw, not ear as in what you listen with. It means to do something from beginning to the end. So from the ear of the straw, the wheat or rye, to the whole finished bread loaf. So it's the whole process. So you could, for example, say, at work, I managed this project from ax to limpa, meaning I was in charge of it from the very beginning right to when it was completed. Maybe it is quite a work-related phrase, actually. At least I feel like I often see it in job adverts and stuff like that. It's often used, yeah, in the sense of managing stuff. You know, we're looking for someone who can take responsibility from ax limpa, from start to finish. Anyhow, onwards with history. Yes, let's continue the story. So... This week, we'll spend a fair amount of time on location in Sigtuna. As we saw in the last two episodes, Erik Segersel founded the town in around 980, and his son, Olof Skjötkonung, improved it after he became the first king of Sweden about 15 years later. Olof really made it a key hub for the area and for his power as a political ruler. It was in Sigtuna where he created the first Swedish mint with the help of some English immigrants who moved to Sweden from England, just like me, but only a thousand years before I made the journey. Yeah, do you feel a sense of historical connection to these minters? I do. I feel like I am Godwin, as we'll see later, and who is in their episode picture for this week. But uh, yeah, it's quite fun, and I'm looking forward to the rest of this episode. Our previous two episodes were varies of biographical in their focus. We saved a lot of the interesting information about the foundation of Sigtuna for today. We'll also come back to the fall of Birka, as this is around the same time that the mainstay of Viking trade and history falls away from prominence and disappears from the record completely. There are lots of suggestions as to why that happened, so we'll examine those after we've done a bit of exploring at Sigtuna. So, without further ado, let's hand over to past Chris and past Orsa, who had a great deal of things to talk about when they were walking around Sigtuna, so let's listen to them now. So yes, hello from Sigtuna, Sweden's oldest town, apparently. Yeah, hello from a... uh, It was snowing five minutes ago, but now it seems to have stopped. Uh, But quite a cold Sigtuna. And while the town is uh, over a thousand years old, it's still very much a a modern Swedish town as well. We're uh, standing right in front of uh, a cash point, an ATM machine. I don't think that was here when Erik Segersel built the town. No, but his son... Olof Kortkonung, as we heard last week, created Sweden's first mint here. So he created the first Swedish coins, perhaps. So it's very similar, actually. Yeah, good point. Good reference. So uh, today, around 9,500 people live here. Uh, Sigtuna is about 50 kilometers north of Stockholm on the shores of Lake Mälaren, uh, which is a vital explanation as to why they built the town here, the fact that there was this waterway. And as I believe we mentioned in Erik Segersel's episode, if you fly to Stockholm, it's quite likely that you land not far from here. The uh, main Swedish airport, Stockholm Airport Arlanda, is just uh, 15 kilometers from uh, Sigtuna in the Sigtuna Council area. Yeah, so as we said, Sigtuna was founded in the 970s in the period that we've been talking about in the last couple of episodes. And it was founded by the two people we spent the last few episodes talking about, Erik Segersel and his son Olof Skjötkonung. 
Ulof, as we mentioned last week, really increased Sigtuna's importance as a town in late Viking Age Sweden, where he started minting coins here in the 990s. And there are still traces of this period all around us in Sigtuna today. And we'll be able to see about how this place became such a great place after Birka disappeared. And that's why we're here today, to visit some of those things that are still available to see today and see for ourselves the remains of history that's still with us. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's great to be out on location again. Although it's a bit cold, it's still very nice to be physically present and recording somewhere outside of the flat. So we're standing on the main street, Storagatan, literally the large street in Swedish. And this has been the main street for over a thousand years. In fact, Sigtuna retains the original town planning from when it was founded. And that makes it Sweden's only 10th century town that still has the town plan intact. And in terms of where we are on the main street, we're actually at the entrance to this small little trading square where there's a huge Christmas tree with a few lights on in the middle. This is still November, by the way, um, and the Christmas tree is up. Um, And there's a few market stalls here selling some stuff. There's someone who's selling what looks like it might be cheese and sweets, and then another person selling lots of knickknacks and random Christmas-looking things. You should maybe say that this weekend is the first in Advent, so it's not that Sigtuna puts up their Christmas trees ridiculously early in November. It's legitimately the start of Christmas this weekend for uh, a lot of things in Sweden. So we're saying that Sigtuna retains the original town planning from a thousand years ago. I mean, the town has obviously grown since, and consequently the town planning has had to incorporate new areas but it hasn't actually grown that much since the late 900s and here in the town center the outline is the same so the Sturagatan that we walked on just now is in the same place and has the same route as when Erik Segersel walked here. Yeah well as we said earlier I think the shops have probably changed. (laughs) The cash points have been added since. It was Erik Segersel who dictated what the town was going to look like. He didn't just decide that it was going to be located here, but also what it would be like. Yes, he wanted to create a town that looked like the towns on the European continent, and he knew that the way to do that was to cooperate with the Christian church. As we saw in his episode, Erik himself was a bit back and forth on the whole idea of Christianity personally, but he understood it was a power factor. So Sigtuna was to be a Christian town. And this was something new for the area because far from all the farmers and the local chiefs and powerful people around here were Christian. Eric wanted the inhabitants of his new town to be loyal to him. And what's the best way to make people loyal? Well, give them stuff and they're in gratitude to you and in debt to you. So that's what Eric did. He gave plots of land to people who were important to him. Around the year 1000, so just 30 years or so after Eric founded the place, about a thousand people lived in Sigtuna. And from the start, it was a very multicultural place. Uh, we talked in the last episode about the English minters who came here during the reign of Olof Fötkonung to make the first Swedish coins. Well, they would have brought along their British influence to the place maybe opened up a few fish and chip shops. No, I don't think they did that, but other British influence. Uh, archaeologists have also found remains that indicate that there was lively trade between Sigtuna and the Byzantine Empire and modern-day Russia, Poland, Ukraine. For example, amphoras from the area around the Black Sea have been found here, along with glass bowls from the Byzantine Empire. And we should perhaps mention that part of the reason why archaeologists can say so much about Sigtuna and what life was like here in the early days of the town is because of the unusual black soil that the ground is made up of here. I uh, can't see any myself right now, but it's probably under under the, the top surface, I presume. And that's preserved objects and buildings really well. Three metres down in the ground, they've even found traces of rubbish and leftover food and things from over a thousand years ago. So that's really exciting. Yeah, we can see what people had for dinner in the late Viking period. 
There is a museum here that displays these amazing finds, but unfortunately, because of corona, we're not going there today. Instead, we're focusing on what you can see on the outside, out and about in this lovely wee town. But before we start walking around, though, we should add that if you can't visit the museum here because of corona or you don't live near Sigtuna, you can have a look at much of the archaeological finds online at destinationsigtuna.se. And we'll post a link on our social media and maybe in the episode description, too. But now let's leave the main street and go for a little walk because Sigtuna is full of remains from those early days of the town in the late 900s. And we'll check back in once we've arrived at something interesting. Well, this is very exciting because not only are we at our first site, we can say we're in our first site. Uh, we are inside the ruins of the Church of St. Olaf. And this was probably the first church in Sweden that was built out of stone. So really the first Christian building that was a more permanent structure, like made out of stone. And it's absolutely huge. It's at least four or five modern stories tall still the main tower and then the sort of surrounding five or six maybe like wings of it are still much taller than us still around so it's really exciting they've dated this to the the first half of the 1100s so slightly later than the period we've been talking about with uh, Erik Segersedl and Olof Rötkornung, but they think that this church was built on the foundation of an earlier church. So perhaps already from the start, this was an important place in the Christian life of the town. And it's been suggested that this original church, the one that doesn't exist anymore, was maybe built by Olaf Rötkornung when he was around. And it's now properly snowing on us, which is really exciting. There's snowdrops falling on our uh, tablet and on the microphone, which is very nice. This, this is the problem when you're in a ruin, that it lacks a roof. Yeah, it's snowing on us because we're inside, but we're there's no roof. Yes, that's a very important point. But we found something very exciting on the sort of outside bit of the church. Let's Should we head around. out yeah. there? Yeah, so there's two gates, one which is left open for you to come in and investigate these lovely ruins, and there's, uh, as you would expect, a couple of signs. And right outside the church, there's the modern-day graveyard. Looks like there's been a funeral pretty recently, actually, because there's lots of fresh flowers. Still very much a, a modern and alive place here, whilst we have ruins from a, a thousand years ago. Right, so we're now outside at the bit that was very interesting because they've used an old runestone as part of the outer wall. Uh, it's pretty high up, it's probably 10 metres or so up in the air, but there's a sign here, a plaque which tells us what it says. Yeah, so it reads, the part of the runestone that we can see reads, In memory of Grimulv, his companion. Okay, that doesn't really tell us much, but Grimulv was a person and a companion of whoever paid the runestone to be made. Yeah, I did a bit of research on this. It's very handy that all the runestones in Sweden have a number and a letter. So this is runestone U385. Not a German submarine, <laughs> uh, which I would love it to be. U835, commanded by... Untersee Captain Hermann Grautschleifen. No, the reason here is that the U stands for Upland, the county that we are now in, and then it gets a number. But anyway, in my research, I found out that this runestone was probably made by a rune master called Tuobjörn, who they think has made three other runestones here in the Sigtuna area, and he lived in the late 1000s how do they know it was him i guess they they recognize a style or a certain certain pattern of rune making so he didn't write turbion was here so how did they know his name was turbion maybe they must have written something saying turbion made this yeah so and then i also found out that grimulv which uh you know you don't really hear anyone being called these days was actually one of the most common names in Viking time Sweden. Shall we go and find something else? Yes. 
we should continue our walk. This is the thing when you're out recording while it's snowing. You pretty quickly get cold if you don't move about. Alright, so we're down by the water. We walked down here from the first two churches that we saw, and so we thought we'd come and see why this place was chosen by Ulof Huokunong to be uh, the place where he wanted to set up his new town, and there are two ducks coming to inspect us. Um, but <laughs> Just as we started <laughs> started talking, turning the microphone on, two ducks, like, like torpedoes, came <laughs> swimming towards us. They're clearly like the vigilante ducks of seek to nah, checking out whatever happens yeah maybe they think we had bread um but yeah so you can see we've got um it's a nice waterfront down here and the lake goes all the way down to the sea uh, eventually so that's why they would have chosen here because it had direct access to the sea but it's also nice and enclosed you can see all the horizons for quite a long distance where other people might be coming from and it's also very um it's very flat the ground is very flat, so it would be really easy for people to drag their boats up onto the shoreline and then take their goods and walk themselves just into the town. You can imagine that this really would have been like a really busy place a thousand years ago where all the traders and travellers and warriors would have been coming to and from. Yeah, and like you said, Chris, it's really an ideally located town. Eric Segelsel was correct in choosing this as a location for a new for a new town because like Chris said you do have access to the Baltic Sea uh, from here eventually from the Lake Mälaren but it's also protected it's not directly on the coastline which would have been dangerous. I mean there's not too much more to say other than it looks very nice and do come here if you uh if you're in the area and there's a little maze here set up for some children with a fake rune stone that's been put up so yeah this this looks really nice and there are now even more ducks coming so maybe we should run away I, I don't think ducks like podcasts maybe that's it does anybody know if ducks like podcasts send us an email if uh <laughs> Send us an email if we if you if you think ducks like podcasts and now there's even more coming. It's like ten ducks approaching us. Okay, let's continue walking away from the ducks. Yeah, I think maybe they're repelled by runestones, so if we find a, a new runestone maybe the ducks will stop following us. Alright, so we've walked uh, a, not very far, just a little bit. This time you might have some traffic noise in, in the background because we're standing quite close to a uh, quite close to a road and we've found another rune stone this is rune stone number nf56 and i read about this online before we got here and i can't i can't stop myself laughing because the inscription on this one reads translated to english ormund had the stone erected in memory of himself in his lifetime so whilst we on so many other rune stones we hear about sort of people who are putting up the rune stones in memory of someone else maybe to commemorate something they did and now they're dead this one is just Ormund put up the stone for himself whilst he was still alive <laughs> what do you know I just think it's it's pretty ballsy of Ormund to just be like erecting a rune stone in honor of myself yeah, and so this one is about two metres tall, and it's next to another ruined church, which only just has one tiny bit of a wall left to it, Sankt Lars's church. And this this rune stone was actually found in 1956 in the wall of that old church. So they were just walking around and, and saw, wait a minute, that looks like a rune stone, and it was actually cut into six pieces. So look, if you look there, you can yeah. see the big cracks in yeah. the rune stone where... It's just been put back together by the local council and the museums and everything. So that's really great of them to, to do that. I am also going to make a correction. You know, when we stood by the other runestone and I said that I had read that Grimulf was a very common name, it's actually Ormund was a common name. I had done some research on this before we got here and I got the two names mixed up. It's Onund, the guy who like the guy that erected this stone that was uh, quite a common name it was also apparently not that uncommon to erect rune stones in memory of yourself like Arnun did it, it sounds a bit like pretentious but apparently it did it did happen 
Well, we'll take a picture of this one. Uh, it's quite hard to read the script in this one. It's quite mossy and just got a load of rubbish on the stone. So it's quite hard to read. But we'll take a photo anyway. Uh, and we'll put that on our social media. And we'll continue walking to somewhere else. Actually, we can see the next rune stone. It's about 15 metres away. So let's just go and see what it is. Okay, this is much better. This is Upland's Rune Inscrifter 390. And this one says, Sven had the stone erected in memory of his father and Thrudis in memory of Ulf, her husband. God help his soul. Yeah, so the names Sven and Ulf were quite common names, so we don't know exactly who they refer to. But the name Thrudis who supposedly had this stone erected in the memory of her husband, there's only one person that we know had that name, and that's the daughter of the famous Icelandic Viking explorer, Eric the Red, who actually has his own saga, Eric the Red Saga. So possibly it was her who was here. Wow, that's very exciting. And what does this one actually look like? So this one is sort of missing its top half. That's why the writing is a bit fragmented. We only we only see the bottom half and there's a big cross in the middle and then we have the writing in that typical snake formation around it. Yeah, and it's much easier to read this one. It's on white stone and it's got the dragon head, but this one looks a bit more like a duck. Um so yeah that's quite interesting and uh yeah this is a really good one and only 10 meters away from the previous runestone yeah like we said ancient remains are really all around us in this uh in this small town of Sigtuna. when i did some research on this and i th- thought the story of how they found this runestone was quite interesting so it was found in 1941 and up until then it had just been the front step to a house so someone had just used this runestone as like the step up to their door and their house. That's what happened with the farm runestone in Leidinger, wasn't it? That was uh, uh, used as someone's yeah. doorstep. So yeah, wow, this is quite uh, a common theme for using runestones. Yeah, it seemed seems so. And then this stone is actually in two parts. Can you see where they've sort of added a little bit to it? Yeah, it's definitely been sort of chopped up at some point yeah that second bit wasn't found until 1958 but it took archaeologists 40 years so into the 90s late 90s to realize that the two pieces fit together wow yeah but i guess it's a bit like a a really big heavy piece of lego you don't want to (laughs) just sort of keep carrying it around does it fit on this one does it fit on this one but you'd imagine there'd be some sort of computer program where they could uh, connect the two yeah, well, maybe not in the late 90s or early 2000s. But anyway, they managed to, to connect the two and now it stands uh, here. So, yeah, really just in the space of, of walking for five, ten minutes, we have come across uh, two church ruins, three rune stones. There are so much more here in Sigtun. I really love how uh, the, the late Viking period, the centuries around 900 1100 it's really all around us whilst this is still very much a modern uh, modern town if right behind this runestone in fact there's a doctor's office and now because of corona they have that tent that you often see put up behind it so we have sort of a runestone and a corona style tent less than five meters apart very 2020 um but yeah i think that's good enough for now uh we'll see what else we can see so we've come across some bonus rune stones these are ones that we didn't know about and so hadn't read up on uh before but this is really cool this is uh rune stone u392 and it's actually in someone's garden Imagine that, having a runestone in your back garden. Yeah, so we're just standing on the on the pavement outside, looking over the fence into someone's garden. And uh, again, they've very kindly put up a little uh, sign so that we can read what the runestone says. 
Uh, it said, Sven had these runes cut in memory of, and there's a bit missing, was the name of the second, Osur the third, Germund the fourth, and there's a mi- bit missing, was their mother. And it says, the inscription is badly damaged and the names of the two of the four or five deceased men and their mother cannot be read anymore. All the names are common in the runic inscriptions of this period and the carving faced in Viking Age Road. And I think we should continue walking up this road as we see uh, another runestone just a few metres away along the road. So let's go look at that one too. Yeah, so coming up to a, a freestanding runestone, a, a fairly big one with a cross in the middle. What does this one say? Okay, so this one says Ufeg had this stone erected in the memory of his two sisters, Tora and Rudvi. And it says that Ufeg means destined for a long life, and it's quite common in the runic inscriptions. Rudvi is a Gotlandic name from Gotland, and this is the only example in the runic inscriptions of ma- in mainland Sweden. Wow, that's really impressive. Uh, Tora is a shortened form of, of names like Torild and Tunvar, and it's the only one runestone erected in the memory of two sisters by their brother. So this is a really rare one. That's really impressive. And it stands on its original site by the same Viking Age road as the one before. Yeah, and in this one, the the right you can see the writing a bit clearer, especially the bit that's here on the on the side. Yeah, well, it's it's weird because it's sort of a triangular, almost a squashed pyramid shape, and on the writing seems to be all on one side, and on the other side, round the corner, there's a giant cross with the sort of band where there's normally writing and runic inscriptions in, but it's empty, so maybe it's sort of half finished don't know there's nothing on the back either so that's really interesting and it's yeah it shows you that it's the only one with a a gotlandic name in mainland sweden and the only one for two sisters by his brother so that's really impressive that we've managed to find a rare runestone as well just by random yeah and i mean i think we could have walked around sigtuna all day and just kept finding runestones kept finding these ruins uh you spotted a sign when we were walking earlier from the uh from where the church ruins were to here uh what did that say so that said the main road where we had those two churches was actually the road in the 1200s which had five churches on it and it was called the processional way because back then there were lots of processions from the original church at one end of the road to the other and they continue along the main road in this street of Sigtuna and it was yeah as I said it was a place for religious processions and on you had different churches all, all along there for the, the Christians of Sigtuna to walk around and probably pass some of these runestones whilst they were doing it. And whilst we were walking around, I remembered something. There was actually a connection to modern day royals as well. There is a boarding school here in Sigtuna where the current king, King Carl Gustav, went to school. So uh, he would have been uh, learning and, and growing up in, uh, in this environment. Uh, founded by one king a thousand years ago and the current king educated here. So uh, once again, there's this connection between the ancient and, uh, and the current. But uh, our fingers are getting a little bit, uh, little bit cold. Uh, and I think we're going to start wrapping up and, and walk back. Or what do you say? Yeah, I think we should pass back to future Chris and future Orsa sitting in the apartment and they'll wrap up this episode for us. So thank you for listening to us outside on this snowy, grey and also sunny, very strange weather um, Swedish afternoon and back to the flat. Thank you, Orsa and Chris in Sigtuna. That was a really fun trip, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it was really good fun. It was a great trip to get outside of the flat. It was a shame we couldn't get into the museum in Sigtuna, as I think we would have then gotten a glimpse of a few of those oldest coins in Swedish history, the work of my fellow Englishman. There are a few things we didn't talk about during our walk around the town, partly because we couldn't find them and partly because it wasn't relevant on our sort of tour, as it was a more abstract concept, so we're going to talk about a few of those things now. 
Sigtuna certainly becomes the main port in the east of Sweden for long-distance trade, a centre for craft production, and a market for domestic trade as well. Jonas Rus wrote an article in the hefty tome that is the book Viking World that we've recommended a few times, and where a lot of the modern scholarship is summarised. And, of course, there was the mint in Sigtuna that we didn't manage to find in real life on our trip, but we talked a lot about that last time with Olaf Wurkunung. But we'll uh, maybe get a chance to go back and go in the museum and see the foundations of it. By founding a town from scratch, a leading political figure like Erik Segosel and then his son, Olaf Wurkunung, could grant plots of land in the town to chieftains, thus ensuring that they are attached to him in an economic and political way and also give them power over local administrative districts called hundreds. It makes sense that chieftains and powerful nobles would want these plots of land as it would enable them to tap into that three-way hub of economic, political and religious power and also give them land near what was the main location for ships and warriors to gather before war. Sigtuna really did become a centre for the crown and also a meeting place for the elite and for those wielding power. Yeah, and this is really is important because Sigtuna does have those three things. It has all those churches we spotted, the main street with all the trading, and then the main location for the king with his minting and his new political hub. So we saw the main street, Storagarten, on our walk around Sigtuna, but apart from the mint, another thing we didn't find was actually a royal residence. And uh, that's because whilst kings are mentioned in connection with Sigtuna a great deal, mainly because they founded it, there's no written or archaeological evidence of Olof Hrödkonung actually having his home in the town. Instead, there was a local official who lived there called a Geld Exactor. Later in the 1200s, there was also a prefect, just like Birka had. It's likely that this Geld Exactor was some sort of chairman of the town court and would have given their loyalty to the king and helped him run it in absentia. Kings in the Viking Age, and a lot of time throughout history, needed to be mobile and visit their people around the country to remind them who was boss. This meant that they had a lot of manors or homes around their territory rather than just one sort of main base. And one of these actually appears to be a place called Fernsigtuna on the other side of the lake to a regular old Sigtuna. Fernsigtuna means old Sigtuna and Snorri Strulason, our famous saga writer, he writes in the Ynglinga saga that this was a royal residence during the Viking Age. So it is likely that this was where Erik and Olof spent their time when in the area, rather than living in the middle of the bustling and presumably quite smelly town centre. But the royal residence doesn't stay royal for that much longer, actually. The area became a bishopric in 1070, and in 1130, when the Episcopal See was moved from Sigtuna to Old Uppsala, Fon Sigtuna was given to the bishop. Maybe because now the bishop didn't have a home church to stay in on his visits to Sigtuna, he would have wanted or demanded somewhere quite fancy to stay. Church officials in the Middle Ages wielded a lot of power. So Old Uppsala, or Gamla Uppsala in Swedish, is about 35 kilometers or 22 miles from Sigtuna. So... Anyone visiting from Gamla Uppsala would definitely need a place to stay overnight. Yeah, so that's nice. They managed to get the uh, old royal palace to be given to the bishop. And as we saw on our walk, there were lots of churches built quite quickly in the foundation of Sigtuna. So Christianity was a big feature of the town right from the beginning, which was, of course, the whole intention of it becoming this hub of the three main pillars of society. 
overall, Sigtuna is absolutely definitely worth a visit and there's still a lot to see by just staying outside like we did and not going inside to see things so do look out on social media for our photos and yeah get there if you ever get a chance definitely we couldn't recommend it enough but there's also more to talk about in this episode when we compare Birka with Sigtuna at the end of the 900s Sigtuna is very much a town founded by a king or at least someone who was on their way to becoming king. Whereas when we looked at the creation of Birka, we saw that whilst power lay with the king and the chieftains in the region, there was no real possibility of them exercising any true power over the extensive network that Birka belonged to. And They even had to ask assemblies to approve decisions like allowing Ansgar to stay, for example. Charlotte Hedenstjärna Jonsson wrote in her article about Birka's power structure that as trade developed, the real power shifted towards the trading families. They owned the resources and had the contacts abroad. They were flexible and could provide themselves with the required military power to guard the commercial traffic. In the 10th century AD, Birka appears increasingly self-governed. Some academics like Herdenjuana Jonsson believe that Birka's decline was because of a mixture of political and economic reasons, underlined by the fact that Sweden's first coins started in Sigtuna. This might have motivated a violent destruction of Birka and a political restart, so to speak, in Sigtuna as the true Christian town of the region under direct royal control. This way they could focus on all three main areas of life at once, with politics, economics and Christianity all being in one place. Peter Lindboom identifies a possible major naval attack on both Birka and the neighbouring site Helga during the middle of the 970s, when the Garrison Hall of Birka was destroyed. This comes from evidence from the Garrison Hall which shows that no more than half a century after it was built, it was destroyed in a major fire. Archaeology has shown us that there were soot and charcoal concentrations in the earth that were discovered that point to this, and even the parapet of the nearby hill fort might have been affected by the same attack. There's also a large collection of arrowheads from the garrison area that add to the burn damage that indicate a violent end to Birka. Sven Kalmring summarises a lot of the current thought on the downfall of Birka in his article that came out in November called Birka's Fall and Hedebu's Transformation. He says... The attacking enemies have been suggested to be mere raiding pirates, yet more likely it was no less than the founding father of Sigtuna, Erik Segosel. Consequently, Lindbom deduces as well that the merchants in Birka started to constitute a threat to Erik's plans to reclaim control over the ongoing trade and were thus forced to relocate to the newly founded Sigtuna. In the latter scenario, the professional mercenaries of the garrison, the Birka warriors, would have fought in opposition to the king and must have been hired by the Birka merchants themselves in their pursuit of autonomy. It's quite a long and complicated quote, but yeah. Can I also just just briefly say that the Birka Warriors would have been an excellent name if Birka had an American football team. Or an ice hockey team, perhaps. Yeah, more likely an ice hockey team. But yeah, as Ulf Nesman says in his article, Exchange and Politics, the 8th, early 9th century in Denmark, he says, The rapid urbanisation from the 10th century went hand in hand with the conversion of Christianity and the spread of direct royal rule. This can be seen as being happening all over Scandinavia at this time. We can see that in the same time as Sigtuna, other medieval towns such as Lund down in Skorna and Roskilde and Aarhus in Denmark, as well as Oslo and Trondheim in Norway, were all founded as these new 
hubs where governmental, ecclesiastical and administrative centres become centralised in one place, allowing leaders and kings to control and lead these three functions from one place. The Christianity aspect is also interesting, as even before the collapse of Birka, it seems that by the mid-900s, leading Christians had stopped attempting to convert the merchants there. Archbishop Unni of Bremen tried one last time to resurrect the Christian mission to Birka, but died there in September of 936, thus following a pattern that we have come across with uh, Christian missionaries meeting their end at Birka. He was actually buried on the island, but his head was transferred to St. Peter's Cathedral in Bremen. Mm, Grim, I don't want to be that postman delivering that package. (laughs) You're at the post office sometimes and you're sending parcels abroad. You have to, like, fill out a form of what it contains... Yeah, like a customs declaration. Yeah, especially if you're sending stuff outside the European Union. What does this parcel contain? A head. Of an archbishop. (laughs) Estimated value, 10 euro. Priceless. He was the last missionary, because then he lost his head, that we know of. So we can say that after the 930s, official long-term Christian missions to Bieka ceased. And not long after, the town itself seems to disappear. And now that Birka is off the map, Sigtuna can really start to thrive and get to create everything we saw in this episode on our walk around and expand even more as we head forward in time, fulfilling Erik Segersel and Olaf Horkonung's wish for it to be this real hub in the east of Sweden. Absolutely. It has been great to explore these first two major towns in Swedish history and learn about how urban development started to spread its wings in Sweden. Uh, We haven't even reached the foundation of Stockholm yet, so I feel Sigtuna and Birka have been good preparation for the founding of a capital in a few hundred years' time. Indeed, and the good thing about our visit to Sigtuna is the fact that we've yet again seen how Viking Age Sweden is very much still around us today, and Sweden's oldest town is still around today as well, with Sigtuna being continuously occupied all the way up to the present day. It's not only that, but it's still got all of these amazing ruins and runestones left from over a thousand years ago. We've used all of this to be able to see how Erik Segersel and Olaf Hörkonung began to usher in a new era in Sweden with the creation of this central hub. It's another indication that we're slowly leaving behind the Viking period and move along into the medieval period, and this stuff will become far more common in the next couple of hundred years. Yeah, and we'll be staying in that general historic area, the late Viking period, but more so the early medieval period for the next few episodes. And we'll see how Sweden continues to form more and more as a proper country. Yeah, we've got a few ideas about how we're going to structure the next few episodes because uh, it's a bit strange, really. After Olaf Rødkorn, we lose a bit of the sources for a while because the kings don't seem to be as important for quite a while. So we're working out exactly how we're going to tell the next part of the story. But we've got something very interesting to share with you now, haven't we, Orsa? Yeah, before we finish, we've had another lovely review on iTunes. Thank you very much for those. Uh, This one's from Sandy in Wisconsin, and she mentions something very interesting. Uh, Do you want to read out what she writes? So, she says... I'm a little behind with where you are currently in your very interesting history, so I've just finished episode 11. When you were talking about the stave buildings and churches, you reminded me of the Scandinavian Heritage Park in Minot, or Minnow, North Dakota in the US. It's not a large park, but there is a structure of some kind from each of the Scandinavian countries. There's a life-size replica of a stave church from Gaul, Norway, and there's a replica of an 18th century stabber, which was built in Norway, disassembled and then brought to the park where it was rebuilt. The Swedish contribution to the park is an amazing 25-foot Dala horse. If you haven't talked about the history of the Dala horse, I hope you will when it's appropriate. Keep up the great job. It sounds like you're having a great time exploring your topic. Sandy, New London, Wisconsin. 
Thank you so much for that review, Sandy. I hope you're doing well in New London. I'm curious what New London is like since we used to live in Old London. Yeah, we started the podcast in Old London. So it's gone from Old London all the way to New London. I'm sure New London, Wisconsin is great. So thank you, Sandy. And thanks for telling us about the Scandinavian Heritage Park in North Dakota. And I knew there were cultural sites related to Scandinavia in the US and particularly in the Midwest region, since that's where a lot of Scandinavian immigrants settled. But I could never imagine that there'd be a whole heritage park with traditional buildings. That's, that's really cool, actually. We haven't talked about Dala horses yet, but Sandy, I've found out a bit about the history of the Dala horse that I'm going to tell just for you. And obviously for everyone else listening, because if you don't know what it is, this might be a bit confusing. So this is one of these iconic cultural historical pictures of Sweden, and they're uh, still around today in certain ways. So we should probably explain that a Dala horse is a carved wooden horse, and it's a very popular piece of Swedish handicraft. Uh, We should be able to put a picture up on social media as well. Yes, they're also not usually 25 feet tall that the one in North Dakota was or is. Uh, They're more like 25 centimeters, so a foot maybe in height. They're uh, sort of handicraft figurines that you're meant to have in your living room. It gets the name Dala Horse from the central Swedish county of Dalarna, where today they are made in the towns of Nusnes and Miura. But originally they were made all across central Sweden. Uh, The earliest traces of making these wooden horse figurines dates from the 17th century when local artisanal furniture makers would carve little horses out of the wood that they had left over from making their furniture. They were often painted bright red, which they still are, and ornately decorated in a pattern known as Kerbit's style. Uh, It's a sort of beautiful, squiggly, wiggly, rounded pattern. Uh, Again, you'll you'll see the picture on our social media. While the Dala horses had been around locally, especially in central Sweden, since the 17th century, they became famous in 1939 when Sweden shows it as a symbol to represent the country at the New York World Fair. And ever since, the dollar horse is often used as a symbol of Sweden. Uh, I've seen photos of our royals and our ambassadors giving them as gifts to foreign visitors, for example. Nice, that's very cool. I, I can imagine the king gives them out every now and then. And it's really cool that an uh, old local piece of handiwork and handicraft in one of, sort of the oldest areas of Sweden has grown to become this worldwide symbol of the country and a a very nice gift to give out to people. So it's amazing that we'll see one 25 times the regular size in, uh, yeah. in North Dakota. It, it says something like the, the in Europe, we often say that everything is sort of bigger in America. Certainly the dollar horses seem to be bigger in America, a lot bigger. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Yeah, and um, we'll see much more about Swedish connections to the US and uh, the foundation of some of these places like the Scandinavian heritage part through these uh, Scandinavian and Swedish immigrants about probably 200 episodes in the future yeah once we reach the near the the modern day but I think there's only one more thing left to say for the episode today by the time you're listening to this it will have just been Christmas for those of us who celebrate it Yeah, and even if you don't celebrate it, it's a nice time of the year pretty much everywhere around the world. If you're in Sweden, we're hopefully going to have a little bit of snow, or you're in the 35 or 40 degrees Celsius heat of Australia's summer, or maybe the snowy streets of Minnesota. So wherever you're celebrating, or even if you're not celebrating, just having a bit of time off work or doing whatever, we hope you have a great end of December, and uh, Merry Christmas if you're celebrating that, and we'll speak to you next year which is a very scary thing to say. Hopefully uh, 2021 improves slightly on this current year that's just about to end.
Before we finish, I wanted to share uh, a Swedish Christmas tradition with you that you may or may not want to take up. You can try uh, this year. So in Sweden, we celebrate Christmas like in the rest of Scandinavia and parts of Germany. Our main celebration is on the 24th of December, Christmas Eve. So that's when we have our big Christmas meal and it's a sort of buffet style meal where we eat lots of different little dishes. And for dessert, we usually have gröt, porridge. Now that I know that that sounds a bit boring as dessert. Sounds very boring. But it's a sweet kind of uh, almost like a rice pudding porridge still boring yeah it's not my favorite either actually but there we go and we have a tradition where we put a whole almond you know the kind of little nut into the porridge and then mix it around and dish it out in the bowls and then whoever gets the almond you know eating mm, mm, there's an almond in my porridge as if it couldn't get any worse. Now there's a nut in it. The, whoever gets the almond... Uh, Loses. No, on the contrary. They'll get married in the next year. Wow, that's extreme. Well, that's, it's... it's like a cheap but ultimately very more expensive version of us putting coins in our Christmas pudding in the UK. Yeah. If you win that, you just get good luck and get to keep the coin. No, you get this an almond. This is very almond. strange. I've never heard of this, this weird well, almond no. marriage proposal. We don't actually do it in my family, come to think of it. But then again, very few people in my family are married. I was just going to say, you don't like weddings in your family in general. We don't dislike weddings at all. Weddings are nice. Uh, we just tended to uh, cohabitate rather than uh, than marry in my family. But if you want to give this Swedish Christmas tradition a uh, a try... Get some uh, Christmas porridge, some rice pudding, and uh, put a whole almond in it. Have some fun with your family. Uh, see who gets it and uh, see if that person gets married in the next year. And let me know how boring it is. Not the wedding, the tradition. No, no, not boring. Please send us a picture of you eating uh, porridge and finding the almond and uh, have a great time over Christmas, whether you're celebrating it or not, or however you're celebrating it. Or, as we say in Swedish, Gjul. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and goodbye. Hey, Dale.